Go. Uh, okay, so we are recording now. Excellent. And just to help me sync this up later, can we try going like one, two, three, and sync? I don't know if that's something we can do. One. You want to like just try clapping or something? Yeah. Clap. Clap. But I can't tell the problem. I don't know if this is not working because you have a terrible sense of timing, or because of the lag time between us is like not enough to sync it on. Yeah. Well, I let you. I let you start before me so that I could catch up. But right. But like, then you so just started clapping like in between my claps. Yep. Yep. Oh God! See, now I hit my pop filter. <laughs> Why'd you do that? Shut up. Is it because you have a terrible sense of space, or just because you know there's a lag? It's because I imagined that the pop filter was your face. Yeah, I bet. All right, buddy. What's the first thing on our... Okay, so the first thing is hello. Hello. My name is Dylan, and this is... I'm Joanna. <laughs> and this is a possibility of opinions. Or opinions, our depending opinions. on whether or not we get the logo done our, correctly. Yes, correct. Um, and this is our third episode, uh, which will be released in November. So if you're listening to this in November, that's because it was recently released. You may be listening to this after November because you're listening to, you know, you're catching up. Maybe you, like in the future, are really popular and you're going through the archives. Or you may be listening to this in October or earlier because you're a time traveler. That's also possible, time travel being so popular these days. Mm -hmm. Well, obviously it's not popular these days. It would be popular in the future. Well, no, it would be popular... If they were all coming back to this time to listen to our podcast in advance, which I'm sure there is a long queue of people just just waiting to do. Yeah, I'm not really sure what the point of that would be, since presumably the recording is the exact same in the future. Maybe exactly. in the future, like like it's like you know the the show uh, Dark Angel, where there's like an EMP blast and it like fries all the electronics. Or maybe sometime in the future. Um, when Big Brother is even more present than he currently is, there's like a uh, system that records when you hear something, and the earlier that you heard a thing, the cooler you are. And so people go back in time to be the first person to hear something. I, or I like this. That's a good explanation. Yes, there you go. Okay, so the first thing is we are announcing our mailbag. So you can email a possibility of opinions at gmail.com. Wait, is it opinions or is it No, it is opinions. Opinion. Stop it. It's a possibility of opinions at gmail.com. And you can send us your thoughts or feedback or whatever. Uh, and right now what we want you to do is recommend us songs about opinions, which we will use for our intro song until we, we come up with something better. So send us your yes. best opinionated songs or songs about opinions. I, either one works, I guess. Um, moving on. We were going to talk. We we're going to have our JP report back. So you may recall that last time, we talked about uh, JP and how that system works, and then we assigned each other some things that we were supposed to do. Um, so wait, where is that on here? Oh, I see. And so, um, but when we did that, I also realized that we didn't actually talk about how much things cost. Like when we spend JP, how much they cost, and how we determine that. So Joanna, can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about it, and I will add my commentary okay. as you go Joanna, on. Joanna, can you stop rolling your mouse wheel? Yes, <laughs> I can do that. Um, 
So this is sort of loose. The, the basic rule is that something costs between 1 and 5 JP, and they, the cost roughly correlates to how much time it takes the person to do a thing, like about one point an hour is the general idea. Just to briefly reintroduce uh, what I assigned Joanna, I instructed her to go play the video game Tacoma and to report back and tell me what she thought about that. Uh, so that's what she's going to do now. Okay. Um, so uh, when I was playing Tacoma... Oh, and can you tell um, us what Tacoma is? Like, give us the setup. What's it like? Yeah, sure. So um, in Tacoma, you play a, a, a character named Amy Ferrier, um, and she's uh, assigned to investigate the Tacoma station, which is why it's called Tacoma. And more or less, what you're trying to do is you're trying to figure out, it's one of those what happened games. So you're investigating an area and you're trying to find out uh, why, uh, you know, there's nobody around and everything's been destroyed. So this game, like other games in its, in its, what I think of its mini genre, is that you, the character spends a lot of time interacting with and figuring out the motivations of AI. So this one has also a pretty intense. By AI, do you mean oh. like NPCs? Uh, yeah, like it's a uh, right, and then sorry, and then like the philosophy of AI, gotcha. like like what what there was an AI and what was it doing and why was it thinking and what was its sort of anti like how does it differ from a way the human would approach the same situation, mm. right? Um, and in this case, there's in this game, there's also uh a pretty strong critique well i the way i think of it is is a pretty strong attack on uh on notions of profit um and capitalism because the um the i don't want to i don't want to give any major spoilers but the central question is um in some ways what does it mean to be successful you know what matters most how do you uh, move forward. Uh, and so I'm trying not to give any major spoilers, but like, do we want to just sort of say that's okay? How do yeah, you I, I would, I would say go for spoilers. So, um, w right now, if you think, okay, so first, do you want to just say if you would recommend recommend this to people and then we can go into spoiler land? Yeah, I think it's great, especially for people who like exploratory games. Um, I think it's, uh, pretty good. If you're looking for a game that, has a lot of like combat or whatever less so right but mm. i think that it's a great game for uh you know for indie not too long exploratory interesting narrative compelling game yeah i think it, for that kind of game it's very good okay so we're gonna put a we're going to spoiler land and i will come back and edit in a timestamp that you can skip forward if you don't want to hear the rest hello this is future dylan Please fast forward to 22 minutes and 15 seconds to skip the spoilers. Thank you. That sounds like a good, that sounds like a good plan. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, basically, uh, there's something called the Human Oversight Accord. Um, uh, and it's a, a political situation where um, they are trying to get it repealed. Um, and by they, I mean, uh, Venturis, which is the company, it's the company that may or that, that your character comes to suspect is responsible for all of this, um, destruction. And when you say destruction, like what, what do you find on this, on the space station when you get there? 
so basically, uh, the station was hit by a meteor, um, and uh, it loses all of this oxygen. And um, man, it's just like it's it's been a while since I played it, so I'm trying to recall all the details. But um, sorry, that's okay. Um, we, Joanna would be giving a um, a better description had she not locked herself out of her apartment, her apartment. on the yeah, day the we were first. scheduled to record this podcast. <laughs> Yeah, um, she, she has to, so your character ends up having to use, um, what do you call it, a video system? What do you call, what do you call that thing? That, that, the, the system that she puts, that she ends up using to put together all the missing pieces. Joanna, I played this game a year ago. You're the one who just played it. You tell me. Uh, I don't remember what it's, 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 it's like a virtual reality system. Sure, though. Oh, augmented reality? It's like an yeah, aug- yeah, 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 it's an AR system, um, that's it, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, so. So how does that work exactly? How about, I'll just say for a second, since I remember, yeah. this is part of the game I most remember. So, in a lot of, um, basically starting with, with a game called System Shock in 1994 and carrying onward, it became sort of a common trope in game design that if you are investigating spaces that don't have where no one's around for whatever reason there are audio logs or written logs right and you go and read people's diaries and emails and uh voicemails and stuff um and so one thing that tacoma does which i don't think any game has done is that rather than just making those audio or textual it makes them visual and so you basically walk into a room and you see all these almost like digital ghosts walking around and going about their business yeah right exactly and it's a little bit like uh um what's really cool about it is that you can follow so like the the ghosts have their narratives that play out but they play out in other rooms and stuff so if you're following them around and you're watching a story play out but one of them leaves the conversation to do something else you can follow that one instead and see what happens in that story rather than staying with the rest of the conversation that you're currently in so one of the advantages or like one of the features of this kind of thing is that it's non-linear mm-hmm. um whereas when you're listening to a recording or you're reading a diary by definition it's like the it's, one thing it's, a, the it's a fixed point in space whereas this is more like lines crisscrossing and you get to see how the stories connect to each other and you end up missing some things, possibly, right. right? Because if you follow the one thing, then you're not watching the other. So there's that. Too. Right. Though it's worth noting that you can always, it has like a rewind, fast forward function. Yeah, that's true. So you can always like go back and so follow. So the perfectionist the can do everything. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, so it's a, it's a really cool sort of setup. Um, uh, but the, I think the sort of twist um in this in this story besides the mechanic of following thing of following characters around ghost-like characters around who were once you know alive um uh although they're they're in cryogenic stasis i think um so they're not actually dead they're Mm -hmm. just not present um it's it ends up being a political situation where um the destruction of the tacoma station has is a has been framed it's a framed accident um in order to affect public opinion um because they're trying to get what's called the human oversight accord repealed because they really want they put a lot of funding into a project um uh, a, a vacation project where they're trying to build basically resort in outer space and how does this connect so, if i if i recall dimly 
what this is a big theme is sort of the traditional like concerns about um, automation replacing human jobs and there being this sort of weird compromise that hu- there has to be a X number of humans per automation or per AI or whatever to sort of guarantee a certain number of human jobs and that sort of attention. But this, rather than being like the more traditional like physical robots taking our jobs, more looks at it in terms of automation taking human jobs, but human jobs that often were like sort of crappy to begin with because they're, you know, Amazon warehouse jobs. Yeah, well, I also think that there's a, a strong component of, um, you know, that isn't necessarily even tied to uh, an AI-centric plot. Like, you could have used a different device, but the idea is that um, the level that we would go to um, to save our, uh, you know, to save face or to save money or to save, a, you know, a commercial project, right? Mm-hmm. In this case, the CEO actually confers with an AI and it's the AI who says the best way to sway public opinion and you know get this thing repealed and all of this is to make it seem like there was an accident that caused the Tacoma station to um, uh, you know be destroyed but the the so you know it's it's an AI story in the sense that like this is the way an AI would think and not a person right an AI would say, the most, the best way to reach this goal is to sacrifice this human life, and it doesn't matter as much to the AI because it's not a human, right? That's the, that's the. But at the same time, the CEO decides to do it, right? right. So, so um, the CEO, in cons- in consultation with something much more computational, comes up with this solution, and I think that it's a it's a critique in the sense that we you know when how do you think you know how do you think about what matters and what you're going to do and, and conversely the the ai that's on the tacoma station tries to to assist in the investigation and to stop the destruction of these people right yeah uh that there are two different ais so there's the corporate strategic ai um and that's juno and then there's the um ai of the actual station and that's odin odin yeah and odin is much uh more friendly much more people friendly than the corporate strategic ai juno is um so 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 but um yeah so so i guess so i guess you could you could accurately say that really there's a comparison there between two different human ai relationships um and one of them is a lot more uh, benevolent than the other uh uh but yeah so in that sense again it really could be a narrative that's more human focused like you could uh it could have been uh any mechanic it would necessarily have to be an ai on the other side to argue that you know how a human thinks about what matters changes you know the course of events Mm -hmm. and 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 how you know, everything, basically, um, it, it matters a lot, you know, how we construct, uh, our ideas of what, of what has value. <laughs> this is, I just love how much this game has been put through like the Joanna filter. Yeah, it's like, true. It like, sounds just like me. Game. I know. Um, and, and so, I mean, the game of course had, I mean, you, this is an accurate description of the great games plot and themes, but I would say that one thing that characterizes Fulbright's games uh, relative to most video games is an attention to small details and the sort of mm-hmm. the inner life of characters. 
And so I wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about that or interesting bits of world building you found. Um, yeah. So I think that um, for for me, the most interesting bits were sort of the um, spinoffs of, of the larger plot. So um, at first I was like, I better, you know, see all the major conversations and try to like stay on the main storyline. But after a little while I was like, okay, this is, I mean, I don't want to sound rude, but there's something sort of predictable about the genre. And I was like, let me go, let me go, you know, listen, let me go watch these random people doing their random things. Um, And that was really nice. That was a lot nicer. I think different gamers will have different experiences with that. Like some of them will be like, I don't really need to watch this person eat lunch or whatever. You know, I would rather, uh, find out what I'm supposed to find out and this is my mission and that's how you know that's how it's supposed to work because there is something that's not necessarily video gamey about it but it was it's actually more compelling to me than than just trying to like you know hit the goals or hit make the achievements or whatever so right and, and I think that that's true that that's sort of a continuum that games exist on and and that is one thing that that uh, distinguishes Tacoma from like there's a lot of video games about AIs and power and corporations and stuff but most of them tend to paint that in really broad like saving the world strokes which this is one where like to to use an example i realize i'm I'm sort of these are leading questions a bit but like you can go and pick up you know objects in this world and they all have beautiful texture work and are really detailed objects and you can so you can go and go through the kitchen and one thing that i don't know if you noticed this but in the future everyone's vegetarian in this not too distant future. Oh, actually, I hadn't noticed. So for every, I noticed that that it was mostly vegetables, but I yeah. didn't. Put so together, if you look at yeah. everything, because this is a game where like literally you can pick up a package and look at the ingredients, and maybe this makes it a little bit more of a Dylan game than a Joanna game because I'm very like detail yeah. oriented, and everything is like um, vat grown meat and soy protein and things like that. Um, there's like, and so it's just like a little detail. And then another story that I distinctly remember is like someone's whose kids they're trying to like make the money work for someone's kids to go to college. Mm-hmm. And their problem, I don't know if you got this one, was that they basically transferred from, like, Amazon to another corporation, like, from Amazon to Microsoft or something. And you're, like, most of your pays and basically, like, corporate dollars that are not transferable. Yeah. And so they basically, like, screw themselves forever because when they were a kid, they wanted to go to, you know, Microsoft College and not Amazon College. Um, and just, like, the, the sort of delicate ways in which that's handled. It's really easy to make stories about corporate power that are just, like, absurd and not absurd but just like very exaggerated like very much like 40 years in the future like it's an extrapolation of where we are now but it'll take a while to get there where this is very much like a you know could be 20 years in the future like it's not that far extrapolated from where we are now Mm -hmm. now um i think that it again we're in spoiler land here right Mm -hmm. but um spoiler land spoiler land but uh the other thing to mention because this game is political is that um you know there's a question right like what is the main character gonna do right like what's the main character gonna do with what she discovers right um and and so um uh it turns out that the character that you are playing um is uh is interested in the in in rights for ai so um she i can't remember what the exact name of the organization she works for is but she's an She's an activist, and so, you know, um, she liberates Odin um, and offers Odin a chance to be free as opposed to going back 
to work for Venturus mm-hmm. um, and probably get wiped. Uh, and it's interesting because the game sets it up where Odin really would prefer to not get wiped, right? That's Odin's, like, it's sort of taken as an assumption, right? Like, of course, Odin doesn't want to get wiped. But uh, it's not necessarily, you know, it's it's interesting that one of the properties, oh, man, this is such a Joanna thing to say as well, but one of the properties that we assign, you know, an AI, even while we're thinking to ourselves, how are AIs fundamentally alien to people? They're, they're afraid of mortality somehow, right? Like this AI is afraid of dying or of being somebody else that's not itself. Right. And there's no, there's no necessary, there's no um, real evidence that this is necessarily true of a machine, right? Right. But, but and it's not a, an argument in the game as much. It's just sort of assumed. Well, I think, again, it's been a while since I played this. I think there's some things in the game about basically machine learning and Odin basically being, you know, set up to be a fairly basic system that can, you know, learn and adapt for its tasks and to meet the needs of its crew. So some of that is emergent. It's emergent behavior. Like that that was not built, design, it was not designed to have that functionality. Well, exactly. But, but I think in in the fact that the way that that happened makes that uh, makes the designers and our as a player our conception of that AI actually more human. Right? Correct. Yeah. This thing that emerges is something that is actually very human. So it's so it's interesting because there's other parts of it that are designed to make us think about like how alien would an AI be, right? Like how fundamentally right different. But this is one way, and it's you know. What I wonder, I mean, yeah, it's a merchant. What I wonder is if there was ever a question, right? right? Like if anyone ever said, hey, what if we had a good guy AI who uh, really didn't care one way or the other right. about getting wiped? You know, like what would that look like, right. you know? So, and to, that, to me, that was just interesting because it's like, uh, you know, when when confronting the alien, right? Um, uh, when imagining the alien, how does that play out? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so any other thoughts? And I guess one thing I want to ask you about Tacoma. So this is the second game from Fulbright. The first yeah. one was Gone, Gone Home. Home. You did not yeah. like Gone Home. Oh, God, that game was terrible. Part of the reason why that game was terrible, though, is that the narrative was very boring to me. I did not care about what happened in that game. But what else is different? I mean, it, you, I know well, I know the last time you were sort of lukewarm, and now you've gone to terrible with it. Um, yes. So, so other than the narrative, what does Tacoma bring to the table that you feel significantly improves the experience of Gone Home? Because they're definitely operating within the same genre and they're like clearly by the same Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I think that honestly, it it's mostly narrative. I think that I just care more about the topic, the, the, the story and the issues in this one mm-hmm. than I did in the other one. I still, like you were pointing out with the food, I'm still not the sort of person who's going to pick up every object and appreciate how well it's designed, right? That's never going to be me. And in Gone Home, it was annoying because in addition to having to go around and pick up bunches of objects to figure things out, I also didn't care. Like, I didn't care about the sister. Mm-hmm. I didn't care. I just didn't, you know? Mm-hmm. So it was like, it just felt like, it just felt like a pain in the butt, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I know that's very, uh, intense, but, but, you know, and then I did, <laughs> I'm just thinking about like what would happen if you went and had put that out on Twitter when, you know, shortly after Gone Home came out and just the total shitstorm you would have gotten. Well, I think part of it is that given the issues that 
where President Gone Home, it was just way after its time. Like, if that game had come out, like, in the 90s, I might have been more interested in it. Well, and, I and that was, I, I had, there was a yeah. similar criticism. I remember I, uh, one time uh, with someone we, we both used to know, I was, had gone to a convention them, I was walking with them, and they were someone who, you know, sort of like you, they dabbled in video games, but they weren't, like, a hardcore game or anything. Um, and they had played Gone Home and were very disappointed. But their disappointment was specifically relative to how much it had been hyped up for them. And so I kind of said two things. One is, you know, would you have liked this better if it hadn't been hyped up? And they were like, yes. But the second thing was that it was hyped up as doing something new. And the thing it was doing was new in video games. But it wasn't new mm. in literature. So I think there's yeah. a lot of stuff that you said, like, it was literature of the 90s and in fact gone home takes place in like 1992 so it's like very much of its era that just had not yet been introduced to the sphere of video games so a lot of people who either didn't read that literature or who just really cared about the medium of video games were really excited about it it was set in 92 but the problem is is that it when it came out it was much later yeah no you're right right no yeah and and so i actually it's kind of weird that on one hand i agree with you that like gone home is sort of tropey and uh tries to coast a little bit too much in the like look of us we're talking about you know riot girl rock and you know teenage sexuality in a video game Uh, but at the same time tons of people responded to it and Mm -hmm. like not just in like a generic mass market lots of people watch titanic way but like the critical sphere people who really you know think deeply about video games responded to it a lot yeah, um, it it was a smart game in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just... That's, you don't have to. It's okay. It's okay. I just found it really annoying. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't, you know, and I'm I'm not saying that it wasn't objectively a bad game. I'm saying that I didn't like it. The, two different right, I was going to say, though, really, from a certain perspective, Gone Home is a game about slowly moving through the world and having to navigate a ton of objects by yourself right which is like joanna's idea of hell (laughs) right well the slowly part is fine everything else is not good though um right exactly i just like oh my god and then it's like if gone home was a video game real life if gone home was a video game where you had a partner and you were just like hey can you go grab that for me and can you roll me around in a wheelbarrow that joanna would (laughs) like the game no i don't think so if it was a game where i could if it was a game where it was a virtual computer and I could just click through a file system, then I would like it. At which and we'll we'll do some of those games for future. Um... Managing other people is a yeah. pain in the butt. Yeah, trying to like com- uh, computers, thumbs up, people, thumbs down. I just I'm just opposed to corporate reality. You know this. I'm ready to upload. I know. I know. Um, okay, so that was anything else you want to say in Tacoma? Um, yeah, I would say that. It's really, really worth playing if you don't have a lot of experience in the indie game, in, with indie games in general, um, because it uh, it has all of these mechanics that you really don't find in, in big box games. Um, and, and it has a lot of, clearly a lot of thought and a love in a way that's, um, I'm going to use the word amateur here, but I don't mean it as in not as in not well done but i mean it as in like an act of love versus an act of technical expertise right um and and i think that there's at least some people who would enjoy gaming more if if more games had that 
feeling about them. One thing I will say about Gone Home is because it was like a four-person team. Well, I played it. I like got it when it came out, and I found just there was like a type or there was an error in one of the logs, something written. So I just emailed them as a bug report, and I actually got emailed back by like one of the designers because you know they don't have a support team. They're like, oh, you know, thanks for submitting this. We'll definitely get this fixed. Um, how are you liking the game? Are you, you know, what do you think of it? Da da da. And I was like, oh, I'm really like, you know, I actually really like it. And they're like, oh, thank you. That means so much to us. And it was just like this really warm exchange that right, we just exactly. never have. <laughs> and the thing is, you can kind of feel that when you play a game like yes. this. And this is a good one if you've never played a game like that, because it's not, you know, there's some games where it's kind of walking simulatory, mm-hmm. uh, and that might feel less, that might feel more like you're watching a movie. Um, but this one doesn't feel like that. Like, it feels like you're definitely supposed to be there doing things. I like walking simulators, yeah. but I can get why some people wouldn't. Um, you, you like them much more than the actual walking well, duh, that's a given. But um, uh, you know, anyways, that's that's just a, a question of if you're like, oh, I kind of want to try video games, but I haven't really played any, and I don't like fighting, or I, you know, yeah. I'm really bad at racing. I always lose. This game might be kind of nice because there's something kind of welcoming about games that are, you know. Uh, that are indie and clearly made with a lot of love yep. in, in this way. Yeah, and, that's all. And as an aside, um, Gone Oof. Home was released for 20 bucks and sold a ton of copies and they made a lot of money. And Tacoma was released for 20 bucks and almost nobody bought it. Uh, well, I'd literally never heard of it yeah, until they yeah, told me about I mean, it. But it had the exact same amount of advertising, probably more advertising than Gone Home did. And was, you, would think, you would think that it would be more well-known because... It was a follow-up. Yeah. But I, by, I think the market changed and... One thing that's happened is making narrative-oriented single-player games is people are not making much money on those right now, sadly. Yeah. Um, okay, so moving along, uh, what did you assign me? Tell me a little bit about... So let me let me explain the origin of this assignment a little bit. Um, when Dylan first moved to Sacramento, one question that arose is, and it's, it's a legitimate question, um, I can say as somebody who recently stopped being a meetup organizer, uh, the um, how do you meet people as an adult in a new place? Um, and weirdly enough, that sort of leads back to the question of when you think about, okay, how do I want to meet people, you know, and who do I want to meet? Um, and you're you're living in a new place. One of the questions that comes up is, well, what constitutes a home, right? Like what makes me feel like I'm at home? Um, and so one thing that Dylan and I share in common is that we both uh, like media a lot and both of us can use media to understand in some ways a lens um, to look at the world. And so I asked Dylan to make a list of uh, media that that was specific to him not just generally but specific to him that makes him think of homecoming uh of coming home or of being at home um and so this is that was my that was my jp assignment to him was make this list and the idea you know was that we share media a lot and dylan likes to curate media so one of the advantages is that there'd be some interesting media but also maybe that we would get a little bit closer to the answer of how does dylan make a home for himself Uh Okay, and so yeah, I think Joanna first mentioned this to me. I think I mentioned like nine months ago. I don't know, a while ago. Yeah. So I, I put some things down then. I put some more. Now it it's a good list with some deep cuts. So I'll just go right ahead, and I'm gonna say that these are 
the way I've arranged this list, there are 10 things on it, and they're arranged in the chronological order of when I encountered them in my life. So from things I played when I was very young to things recently. So the first one is a uh, documentary, well, not a documentary, a mockumentary from 1996 called Weird Al, There's No Going Home. So the Disney Channel, back in its day, it was a pre- premium subscription service like HBO. Like you had to like buy, you know, you had to have a set-top box and it was everything. And for whatever reason, for a short period of time, uh, around like 95 to 97 or something, so I was um, somewhere between 6 and 8, 6 and 9, uh, my parents got had the Disney Channel. Um, and they had a music documentary series called Going Home which was sort of a more upscale, tasteful take on what VH1 would later do with Behind the Music, right? So they'd do musician intercut concert footage and story of their lives and how they got there and whatever. Um, and so somehow, I don't know under what circumstances this happened, but Disney got hired Weird Al to do this, and he proceeded to basically make a fake documentary that was just a big send-up of the format and of sort of music biopics in general. And so it's like about him going home to Linwood, California and hanging out with his real parents, but also his like fake grandparent blind Yemen Yankovic, you know, who wrote the shortest blues song in existence and just like, you know, mm-hmm. fake encounters with weird fans and, and secret service agents and all sorts of stuff. And I'm sure if I went back together today, I'd find it like a mixed bag. But like I saw this when I was seven and I haven't seen it since. You know, it is not available anywhere. I think you can find it on YouTube in, like, a shitty – someone's shitty VHS copy. Um, but I still remember some of the jokes 23 years later because when I saw this, I'd never seen a mockumentary before. It was many years out from seeing This Is Spinal Tap or anything like that. So the idea of this sort of weird, magical universe with Weird Al, who I'd only just discovered, like, six months ago um, was amazing. And I think of this because it is literally – it's about him going home – to a home that is both real and fake because it's his actual home, but also, um, you know, this, this fictional construct of it, yeah, which says yeah. something about like what it is to be a public figure. Like there's weird Al is a real person that we know things about, but then he's also, his name is not weird Al, right? His name mm-hmm. is Alfred. <laughs> um, so that was, the... I was just scrolling the notes. I'm sorry. That's fine. I scrolled. That's okay. So you, noise. you can do it every once in a while. Um, the second one is Powers of Ten. I bet you've seen this movie. It's probably not going to ring a bell, but I bet you saw this in school. Um, so this was a movie that was, the final version was released in 1977. It's in the National Film Registry because it's really important. Uh, and what this is, is a film that people would generally see in like science classes to learn about the universe or the scale of things. So you basically see a picture of a person like lying on a, in a field. Um, and then this movie scrolls into their hand and you see like, okay, this is 10 times closer then it's 10 yeah. times closer and it starts going to cell structure and eventually get down to like electrons and it starts zooming out to going the other direction like out to the universe so you've seen that you know what i'm talking about joanna yeah i do and so i just think this film's really interesting it was one of the first films to like use to like really it was actually funded by ibm because like you couldn't do this without computers this levels of zoom and obviously there's not a camera that's zooming out into the universe right so you're using computer yeah. computer compositing to make this happen but i also just think of it in terms of home because it's like it really looks at the body as home and our level of scale as home that we can sort of be in the same place at least along a single axis and yet go to completely foreign places like inside our body or out in the universe 
and in both times they can't like at the end of the movie returns like the person lying in the field at the same scale so i just think of that as like home is body home is sense of understanding where we are our place in the universe i guess which is what that film is all about um the third one i put on was the elder scrolls 3 morrowind uh which is one of my favorite games uh, it came out in 2002 i have spent more time in it than any other single player game and that will probably be true till the day i die because if you add up a couple combined playthroughs i've probably put about 500 hours into that game um so morrowind there'll probably be some other podcasts where i just go into morrowind in great detail but yeah. to give a high level va- thing it's a game where you are a prisoner who's released who might have a destiny and you're like dumped on this island and kind of told to walk somewhere and then you kind of figure things out from there um and so it's a island it's one of the first games where they have like a real a very large space but every detail is mapped out none of it's abstracted so you can walk to every house and go in every door and you know go into the wilderness and do all sorts of things and so it's a game where you trekle over this island you collect all sorts of stuff but one of the interesting things and so very quickly you have a need for a home i don't mean like your character needs a home i mean that you psychologically it's something the player would appreciate you want a place to store all the crap you're collecting you want a place to sort of recover after adventures um but the game has no built-in houses or it has a few but they're like they're at the end of long quest chains in the middle of nowhere um so very quickly a lot of players just start figuring out ways to get homes one thing you could do is just like find an abandoned home which there are a few in the game and just take it as your own some people would just go and kill people and murder people and then just like live in their house that they like um but then there were also tons and tons of mods it was the most common most popular type of mod was ones that added houses for you to live in um so i finally and i tried a bunch of them and i finally got one that i really liked which was just like it had a whole backstory about it being like from some person who was the descendant of alexander the great it was very elaborate that's lovely and uh and what it was it was basically like a hatch an existing uh thing in the game world and you'd go in there and it had a room a nice little bedroom with like a little reading area like a desk it had sort of and it had a an indoor pool with a diving board that you could leap into it had like a little reading room and one other thing that was true about morrowind and this is a game that in the game there are 300 different books you could collect and read a lot of which were pretty good so there was something to be said about having a place to sit and read and it's also true that this game had two spells in it which were called mark and recall so normally getting this was before fast travel became a thing in video games so getting anywhere you had to either walk there which could take forever or you had to use a combination of like you take a silt strider which is like a floating flea thing to a place and then like take a gondola to another place and then take a teleporter to another place right it took a while to get places so the mark and recall spell was you'd pass the mark spell and it would place a mark on one place and only one place in the entire world and the recall spell would always return you to that place and you had to be very tactical i mean you could just go around and put it like the beginnings of dungeons and teleport back but i put it in my house so i could be wherever and then i could teleport back to my house when i was kind of done for the day um and these mods were so popular that in all the future Elder Scrolls games, they had a bunch of houses built into the game that players could buy and modify. That's awesome. Um, so I thought that was cool. Another game that uh, came out in 2002 was a game called Animal Crossing. Um, Animal Crossing. Animal Crossing. Thank you, Joanna. Originally released for the Nintendo 64 <laughs> in Japan, ported to the GameCube and released in 2002. Um, and Animal Crossing was a very unusual game and that 
at first look, it was something sort of like SimCity or The Sims and that you're in a place. Right. You're just a member of a community. There's no combat. There's no quests. You know, you're just living there, chilling out and, you know, helping your neighbors find their lost things, mowing the lawn, you know. Uh, And its big feature was it took place in real time. So if it was a nine o'clock on a Thursday um, in real life, it was a nine o'clock on a Thursday in the game. And so characters had day-night cycles, stores open and closed at certain times, and also um, it had holidays. So on Groundhog's Day in real life, you could go into the game on Groundhog's Day and there'd be like a, a thing where they'd go and you know see if the Groundhog saw his shadow. Um, and so that, more than anything else, really helped it establish a sort of a home away from home. You could go in and hang out with these characters you came to know and who like noticed if you were gone. Um, it had its limitations. You'd be, you know, you, they... AI was not very good. You couldn't really talk to them. You know, eventually the, like all these things, you play long enough and the illusion starts to break down. But overall, it was really good at creating that sense of space. And I distinctly remember spending one New Year's Eve staying up till midnight to watch the ball drop in the game, right? Some of the people were watching that stupid thing on TV, right? But that was so much better. Um, Ah. uh, So that that is a big... uh, home game and and then the third in this series is also another game which comes out only a year later 2003 because homes and games are starting to become more of a thing uh this was star wars knights of the old republic kotor kotor i I like that you know that did you not know that what kotor like have you heard that phrase before yeah yeah, okay okay i was like did you just do that really fast yes everyone calls it kotor um and this is a game that i actually probably don't like as much as most people do but one thing it does really well is that, you know, this is a game, it's a Star Wars game, and it's very clear the designers watched a lot of Star Wars movies. I mean, watched these Star Wars movies that existed over and over and over, and were like, what makes these tick? And one thing they figured out is that the Millennium Falcon is like the only setting that's always in the game, right? Because it's always in, in Star Wars, sorry. Because in every movie, they're on different planets, and they're always moving, but the Millennium Falcon's always there, and always Sheen saw it on the Millennium Falcon. So they basically give you a ship called the Ebon Hawk, yeah, I know, right? Like, gee, what is that evocative of? <laughs> um, that you take to all your different planets, but it's always there and that you your characters hang out and you can soup on. So you basically have a home that's mobile. So it all goes with you. It's not like you have to trek back to the starting location to go to it. And that created this really good sense of continuity in this universe mm-hmm. and was a technique that was borrowed by a lot of video games. So starting from after Night of the Republic, it became pretty normal for rpgs to give you a home base that you return to um and sort of make your own whereas previously almost all rpgs were just like always moving forward you go into the dungeon you're adventurers you don't have a home mm-hmm. so that was an interesting sort of shift in games and one i still appreciate the next one is sort of quick um which is a sense of home as something that you're comfortable with and like in the connection of home with nostalgia so I played Final Fantasy VII when I was 12, I think, or maybe 13 when I first played it. Uh, I played it on the PC. I did not have consoles at this point. I loved it. I played it multiple times. I was obsessed with it, you know, and then some time passed. I think so. It comes out in 2007. Or sorry, 1997. Uh, in 2007, I think 10 years later, maybe it's sooner than that. Maybe it's 2006. Something around that, they come up with a movie called Final Fantasy VII Advent Children, which is the film sequel to Final Fantasy VII. And I watch it uh, with a little, some mix of enthusiasm and trepidation. It's terrible. 
it is one of the worst movies I have ever seen. It has has lovely animation, but it's... The characterizations are all over the place. The plot borders on nonsensical. It decides that what it really wants to do is have, like, 45-minute fight scenes that are just, like... It's, I think, I mean, I can go, it's not good. And so to me, that was a real sense of, like, you can't go home again. And in fact, it was so bad that it was one of these things that made me go, like, wow, I bet if I played Final Fantasy VII today, I wouldn't like this either. And this was cemented a little bit by what I, I remember going on F- Facebook or MySpace or whatever in the other days and being like, God, this was so terrible. And other people I knew being like, I don't know, it seemed like that was pretty much in keeping with the game. And just being like, oh, no. Like, I guess this thing I love so much is actually terrible. And so then fast forward to about uh 2010 where i'm preparing to do my division three write my book um and i've decided to make final fantasy 7 one of my games because it's of a certain historical import and so i spend the summer replaying it um and this turns out probably being like my single most fond memory is playing final fantasy 7 in the summer of 2010 with both my dogs sitting with me on the bed in front of the tv Aww, just all that's co- nice um, cuddled, that was jasper that was and jasper Rolly, and Rolly, right? right cuddled with them and playing final fantasy 7 and just being like oh, wait, no, this game is actually great. You totally can go home again. And just having that experience. That's lovely. Um, the sixth one on the list is actually a book-film pair. Uh, the book is called The Death of Napoleon by, I'm going to say this name wrong, Pierre Rickmans, and the film is called The Emperor's New Clothes, which is the film adaptation of it. I don't know if you've seen seen this, Joanna. But, well, let me tell you if this rings a bell. So what... what the, and the, the film is pretty faithful to the book. Um, the book's very short. It's 150 pages. I would highly recommend it. It's a very unusual, interesting read. So it basically has as its idea that Napoleon, when he's exiled in Elba Island, and his buddies come up with a plan where some um, guy in the mainland who looks remarkably like him will basically do a body swap, will take his place on Elba Island, uh, Napoleon will escape and go and, you know, restart the revolution. Then the guy in Elba Island will be like, haha, I'm not really Napoleon. And then Napoleon will be like, I'm Napoleon. And everyone will rally around him and, you know, he'll take over France again. What actually happens is that the guy in Elba Island decides he likes the sweet life, will not reveal that he's not Napoleon, uh, and then ultimately, you know, imbibes too much liquor and, like, dies of a heart attack mm-hmm. or liver failure or whatever. And so poor Napoleon is stuck in France with no evidence of his of who he is and of course the point is that like no one this is pre-tv no one actually knows what napoleon looks like right like so it's there's nothing he can do and so it's about him trying to come to terms with that and like part of him being like i'm napoleon and i must start the revolution and then like this greater sense that that's just not going to happen and he needs to find um find a new life you know, and there's like a great scene where he gets like tricked into being sent into an insane asylum by like one person who figures out who he is, and he gets sent to an insane asylum with people who think they're Napoleon, which they're mm-hmm. like a bunch of, you know. Um, but so it's a very much like a bittersweet story of like on one hand being very sad, but it also has like a large heartwarming quality of like him finding his place as a normal citizen and like you know finding love with like someone he's met and things like that. Um. The book's probably a little bit better than the film because the film does try to, you know, it tries to film filmize it a little bit, make it a little bit less depressing and, you know, more. Uh, but it's still really good. And uh, Ian Holm plays Napoleon. 
uh, and just a, a fabulous performance. So I recommend both of those. Uh, the seventh one on my list is one that we've talked about before, which is Double Find Adventure. Uh, and I think of that because that's a series about a bunch of people coming home, not to a place, but to a genre in this case, to a time of their life, to a type of game that they used to make but couldn't for many, many years, and trying to basically put back on the old shoes and do the magic that they did 15 or 20 years ago. You know, and, and Double Find Adventure yeah. chronicles that effort. All right, and that's also something that's sort of that's sort of bittersweet and sort of like wonderful and also sort of scary. Like them not being sure do people even want what we're offering anymore? Do people want this? And can we do? Can we pull it off again? Um, the ninth thing on the list is a movie that we watched actually this summer: Return of the Sakaka Seven which is a movie about a bunch of people, friends from college, you know, meeting up like what, five, 10 years later, um, sort of at a house party and, and sort of reconnecting. And, but also that sort of that moment when you're sort of trying, it's about that moment when you're sort of trying to keep your youth or, or preserve those things you really liked about college, but you're all sort of growing older and drifting apart. And so again, that's that sort of sense you can't go home again. And it actually, the movie, touches a chord for me because about a year after I graduated from college, I went back for a vacation, uh, a visit at Hampshire, and it was actually really shitty. <laughs> and there definitely was like this sense of like, you just can't go back. Like after you graduated, it seems like this magical place, but you yeah. really can't go back. Yeah. Um, and the final one, this is maybe the weirdest one, but there's a documentary called Ecstasy of Order, the Tetris Masters, which I really liked. It was... Um, better than I expected. And what the documentary mainly focuses on is people who play Tetris competitively, which is to say kind of one-up each other to try to get the high scores and like what that weird little community is like. Um, but a sort of major subplot in the film is about this guy named Thor who was like an amazing Tetris player in his youth, you know, when he was 8 or 9 or 12 or whatever, and then, you know, left and went and did his thing and never talked to any of those people ever again. And it's sort of somehow people find him again and try to talk him into coming back into the scene and like trying to post a high score or just come to this Tetris tournament for old time's sake. And his sort of trepidatious return as an adult, like not really being sure if this is something he should do or want to do. Um, and that, again, that sort of tension of does coming home, is that an admission of like immaturity or does that mean that you're abandoning your new home or like, what does that mean? Right. Can you have, yeah. on, can you have only one home? Um, right. Cause he has, yeah, cause he, he has yeah. like a, a life and a functional life and everything, but like, you know, some part of him still loves Tetris and misses this community. Uh, so I, I would highly recommend that. It's a lovely film, but that is, um, that's my list. I don't know. Any thoughts, Joanna? Um, so, I'm not surprised that most of them are video games. Um, and I guess... Uh, no, what are you talking about? Only four of those were video games. It, well, okay. But it felt like the, what got the most airtime was video yes. games. But I think, um, you know, if I were going to say, you know, what's the next step, right? Like, this is an annotated bibliography, as it were. Um, I, You know, like, what one thing that comes up again and again, I feel like throughout your description is 
you know, the time that it happened in or the time that you came back to it, right? Mm-hmm. So either it was really great because of the time in which you encountered it or because of your return to it. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that's just a very interesting theme, you know, um, uh, that it's, you know, I'm not sure that everybody would have that as part of their list, right? Some people would probably say, Oh, I really like this media because it depicts a close group of friends, right? Right. And that could be in the 90s or in the 2000s or in the 80s or whatever, in the early aughts, as they say. Um, But for you, it's very much connected with time. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's interesting, right? That like your understanding of belonging is, you know, uh, it's like it is a, is a, is very tied into the time in right. which it's happening. Well, I will say and that's that just interesting. Home, by definition, is a place you return to. No one has a home that they've only been to once, right? Yeah, that's very true. One thing I wonder, though, um, uh, the, I read a book in grad school, but not for grad school, about nostalgia that theorizes that you can have, you could theoretically create notions of home uh based on things that were never ex- that never actually existed, existed right yeah. that they're just yours you know they were just yours in their own way that book was about nostalgia and how we can be nostalgic for things that aren't that that were never there right mm-hmm. that we can remember things in a way or or even that we weren't alive for but we've sort of taken um and so i agree with you it's really interesting that like it's this thing that it's this notion of this sort of what, what was that spell the call and the mark it's like mark this no- and recall it's the mark right it's this notion of the mark this thing that's sort of a staple in your life upon that you sort of go out from and come back to right. um but uh but sometimes in your list you'd be like i was seven right and i yeah. and i discovered this thing right you weren't 15 you didn't come back to it right in that sense right but but it it was a mark around which you existed for a while that you, you know, and that's whatever. I, I yeah. find it interesting. So Yeah. Well, and I would also say that another thing that characterizes home is, is safety, right? And one of the big, one of the worst things about not having home off in the literal sense, right? Of like living on the streets is the lack of safety. Um, and so that does tie into nostalgia because both a, a literal home and nostalgia are things that make you feel warm and fuzzy and accept it and like you know you kind of know your place in the world and i guess i would i would say for me i mean i think part of my strong orientation towards media the way in which i as you say use media as a lens is because growing up you know my childhood was rough and i don't mean that in the sense of like you know i was beaten or i was destitute but just in the sense that i was somebody who had you know was autistic in a neurotypical world and had clinical depression and, you know, just just navigating other people on a day-to-day basis was really hard for me. And so if I think of a lot of aspects of my life, they're just painful. Like I, I accept that there are things that happened, but they're not things I want to return to. And the only thing that – and so my sense of, of temporal sense of home from those periods is actually rooted in media and the things that I can go that, – that were good then and are good now. You know, and that and that for me were sort of my harbor in the world because there are things that I just communed. It was between me and myself, 
and all the social stuff didn't enter into it. Yeah. Okay. So that is, um, that's the homecoming list. So uh, let's talk about new ways of generating JP, Joanna. New ways of generating JP. Sounds good. I'm going to click a little that's bit. Fine. I apologize. That's fine. <sighs> that's why I print them out. Oh, that's smart. I didn't do that. But the reason why I didn't do that is that the same cable that I use for the printer I use for my microphone, and I couldn't be effed to switch it around. All right. Um, uh, oh, yeah. This is cool. It's the achievements. Okay. Okay, guys. This the is Chivos. Cool. The Chivos. Um, yeah. So uh, we had this idea. Um, I don't. I don't even know why we had this idea but the notion is basically we need new ways of generating jp because the old ways really relied on us being in the same physical place and we are not in the same physical place anymore that's the short version so new ways of generating jp um and one of them is um you can uh uh get like instead of having a badging system or in addition to having a badging system if you if we wanted um you could get uh, JP. So like where, where you might get like, oh, earn a badge for, and this is very common in video games. So many of you probably know it from there. Like if you fin you get to a certain point in a video game where you do something that's optional, but you happen to do it, you might get an achievement, right? So suggest an achievement. Um, if you accomplish X, you get uh, Y JP, no more than five JP per achievement. Um, it can be related to something that happened in the podcast, but it doesn't have to be. It can be a dare. It could also be joint. Um, and we're throwing it out there if anyone wants to suggest an achievement. Uh, we can also, yep. you know, come up with our own. Yeah, That's and so we'll, we'll probably be reviewing some on the next podcast. But yes, please email a possibility of opinions at gmail.com uh, for your achievement ideas for us. Yeah. Um, and so now JP assignments for next month. I'm sure you did this, right, Joanna? I did do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so do you want to go first or should I? Uh, I'll go first. So okay. for Joanna, um, for a long time, we often talk about films and sometimes have disagreements on films, like just how we understand films and how they're made. Uh, and so for something like five years, I've been bugging here to read this one article by a writer named Film Crit Hulk on acting and just his knowledge of acting and how acting works um, and what goes into it. And then I was reminded this much more recently when we had he had an article from I think about within the last year about Keanu Reeves and why Keanu Reeves is a really good actor, but is perceived by the masses to be a really bad actor, and kind of how that how that all works out. And so I'm just assigning those to Joanna to read and give me thoughts on. Uh, I will post the link uh, in the description for the podcast. So for people who want to read along, you can read both of those. Yeah. Um, great. So uh, so this is a analog game assignment um, and a song assignment. Right, now well. to make it a listening to a song assignment. I was recently, I played this game that I am now going to assign to you. It's called Illamot. Illamot. It's a and then Joanna's solid state drive filled up, and she ceased to record. Dylan waited patiently while Joanna found files to delete. Okay. All right. It's definitely recording, though. That's what matters. All right. 
So, where we left off when my computer took a shit was that we, I was assigning you JP. And it's a card game that I want you to play called Illamat. But it has a, so Illamat is a set collection card game that was developed by the same people who did Gloom, which I know is not the most, it's not a great advertising point. I actually like Gloom. This one's a little bit better. Well, I don't. But this one's, this game's a little bit better. Um, And it was designed in collaboration with the Decemberists. How do you feel about the Decemberists? I think I like them. <laughs> okay. So specifically, they have a famous song called The Crane Wife. Um, and your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to listen to the Decemberists and play Illamat, which is the game that they helped design. Okay. So when you say listen to the Decemberists, like an album, like every song they've ever recorded? The album that has The Crane Wife on it. The Let's album that has that. The Crane Wife on it. Okay. There you go. Um. And are you mailing me this game? How am I going to play this game? It's up to you. I can mail it to you if you want to have it. If you want to, if you want to, I don't know what the game store situation is there. Where we are, it's play, they're playable copies. How much does it cost to, to buy? Uh, I don't know. Shall I mean, I, I'm probably happy to do it. I just mentioned, I think the normal role of JP is you can't make people spend money. True. Although I did with, oh, I didn't with the coma, did I? can't remember i think no you know you got that for free all right what's uh anyway it's fine that's not we don't have to legislate that yeah okay yeah i can just send you my copy and I'll I'll, I'll, you I can buy. we'll figure it out after the podcast it's boring for listeners we'll yeah. edit this whole bunk out <clears throat> yes sounds joanna good. that sounds great i would love to play illamot and listen to oh the my God. um but i just really want to know what you think of the game i kind of like it um, and let me tell you let me tell you going in what i what my entire association with the decemberists yeah. Two of them. One, there's an album by Lucy Wainwright Roach that um, has guest vocals by whoever the lead vocalist is for Decemberists that I love so much I put it on my um, annual playlist a year or two ago. Yeah. The second is that back in 2002, 2000, 2003, somewhere around there. No, it must have been later, 2004 or five, because I was in high school. Um, REM and the Decemberists, the Decemberists, were headlining um, Bumper Shoot. And someone I know went, and I asked them about it, and they were like, oh, yeah, I guess R.E.M. was okay, I guess. I was really there for the Decemberists. And I was like, blasphemy. Anyway. Um, and also, for the longest time, I got them confused with Wilco. So I don't know if that's an insult or a compliment, but there you go. Okay, speaking of songs, it's time for the song break. By popular request, we are now inserting a break in the middle of the podcast, so it isn't just pure two hours of talking. Yeah. And we're going to take turns picking the song. And this week, I picked a song for a very particular reason, which I will tell you about after the break. Joanna, have you ever heard the song Peaches by the Presidents of the United States of America? No, I've heard songs by Peaches, but not a song called Peaches. Peaches, yes. Unrelated. So we're going to listen to that now. We'll be back in a few minutes. Please enjoy. Moving to the country, I'm gonna eat a lot of peaches 
I'm moving to the country, I'm gonna eat me a lot of peaches. I'm moving to the country, I'm gonna eat a lot of peaches. I'm moving to the country, I'm gonna eat a lot of peaches. Peaches come from a can, they were put there by a man in a factory downtown. And if I I'm gonna eat a lot of peaches. I'm moving to the country. I'm gonna eat a lot of peaches. I'm moving to the country. Gonna eat a lot of peaches. So that was Peaches by the Presidents of the United States of America, or PUSA, as a Washingtonian at work told me they were called. So both Joanna and I are deeply musically ignorant people. Would you say that's correct, Joanna? I know I am. I don't know about yeah, you. Yeah, we are. Um, okay. So despite the fact that like my favorite type of music is early 90s alternative, and the fact, despite the fact that I grew up in Seattle, I never heard this 90s alternative Seattle band really before in my life. Um and so something possessed me earlier this year to go and listen to their first album. And I was like, oh, you know what? This is pretty good. Um, I think what I liked about it is that it's very like, overtly silly and irreverent in a way that is not characteristic of pretty much any popular music at this point, even including indie rock. So fast forward like four or five months, I'm volunteering at uh, Mary House, which is a place that um, – feeds uh women and children experiencing homelessness uh and one of the things we're giving is is peaches like peaches from a can and someone sings something someone says you know go into the country you're gonna eat a lot of peaches or something like that and i'm like what is that from where have i heard this and they mentioned the song and i'm like oh yeah i heard that recently i really liked it and it turns out everyone else hates it because apparently got a lot of airplay in the 90s and drove people crazy and they hate it yeah that also goes right yeah. over my head 
every once in a while I know when a song has been overplayed and that means that it's been so overplayed that it's just right, like exactly. we're just way past that's the only time I ever know like that one about the, you know that girl that's far away and <laughs> oh that one song that's about that <laughs> <laughs> the, the plain white tees one and the name of it is Cicada parody yeah I don't know what you're talking during the season of the yes you do well you oh have to sing God. it for us it's... then so i know what you're talking about i don't hold on damn it i have to know what it is now okay now we have to set that we're gonna edit this shit out no 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 hey there delilah yeah she's far know. away you don't know nope. hey there delilah oh my God. i mean maybe maybe i'd recognize the guitar list but not the lyrics anyway again deeply musically ignorant in fact i've had so many arguments over the course of my life where i haven't heard a song and people ask me how have you not heard the song as if I could answer that. Like, like sincerely, like, they don't believe me. I've actually had people call me a liar when I told well, them. Well, how often do you listen law. to the radio? I don't. That's probably why. Right. So, exactly. And yet people are like, it's always a weird question. How have you not heard this song? Right? How have you heard this song? There's an answer to that question. Right? I heard the song in this place at this time. How have you not heard this song? That's an unanswerable yeah, well, question. Well, it's it's only how have you not heard this song isn't really a how question. It just has a how at the beginning of it. It's not really a technical question about the process you used to not hear the song. Because people are, <laughs> but you'd think so, right? Often people like, that's not, they don't just say that and move on. They like really want to interrogate me as to how it's possible that I haven't heard this song. Right? I can't answer that question. Yeah, but that's, the, how is it possible is different than how did you not hear it? Yeah, right? yeah anyway. I, I can't answer that question. I've lived my life and not heard the song. Anyway. Hey, hey there, and, Delilah. What's it like in New York City? I'm a thousand miles away, but girl, tonight you look so pretty. Yes, you do. How would he Times know Square if he's a thousand miles right away? As you. I swear it's true. And nobody likes the song, but okay. it was very... Okay, it was, you're right. It was you know, I probably do know the song. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> not talking about Hey There, Delilah. Um, so then, okay. <laughs> fast forward a little bit at work, and I'm just like sitting at, at TELUS, you know, the phone bank. You know, before we, like, open and I'm singing a, a little bit, you know, kind of going to the country, going to eat me a lot of peaches, right? Yeah. And the person next to me is like, oh, my God, stop. Don't do that. I hate that song. You're going to get stuck in my head. Um, we're going to say this person's name is May. So, of course, as a um, considerate and compassionate coworker, I proceed to do whatever I can to get the song stuck in their head. Um, you know, but I'm not, I mean, I don't want to be banal. I'm not just going to sing the song because where's the fun in that? So as an example, a few days later, a coworker is talking about how they can't see anything out out of their glasses because there's so much dust on them. And I'm like, huh, maybe he got all those dust on his glasses when he went out to the country. You know, and they just get mad, they get mad at me. Um, and so this escalates. At one point I try to send them an image meme, but I forget to change, I forget to change the file name so they can see what it is. Going to the country, got to eat a lot of pictures. And they're like, no, I'm not accepting that. Like the file transfer, right? So I have to start getting more clever, right? So, because they're, they're on to me. I think you should change all mentions of the word cloud to mentions of the word butt. Yeah, stop it. Stop it. Um, so what I, my, my coup de grace is that I get another coworker who we're going to call, we'll call him Jork. Um, so I tell Jork that I will pay him a dollar if he goes up to May and tells her that he is leaving SPL, Sacramento Public Library, because he's moving to the country and he's going to eat a lot of peaches. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. And so I say, okay, okay, $2. And I take the $2 out of my wallet. 
He's like, fine. <laughs> so I leave because as much as they want to see this, if I was present, it would ruin, you know, it would tip her off, right? So she reports to me later. Uh, let me find the chat log here. Uh, so apparently what happened is he went to her and he says, you know what, I'm actually, because he, he's been thinking about getting an MIS degree. Um, he's like, you know what, I'm, I decided I'm not going to get an MIS degree. And she says, oh, no, why? He's like, well, because I'm leaving SPL. And she like, she's like, what? And she, apparently she tells me that she almost, like he says he looks like he was going to cry. And she started like feeling really sad. He's like, you know, because I'm moving to the country. I'm going to eat me a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> and I wish, I sadly, if I wish I had a recording of this. So she texted me later. She's like, you're cruel. Um, and I says, well, it sounds like I got my $2 worth. And she said, you did. Like, seriously, I was going to cry. Oh, no. And I said, and she said, considering some other stuff that happened in her life, she was feeling vulnerable and, like, she had lost faith in the library system. And I says, I said, oh, my God, I couldn't have planned that. That's what we call ser ser uh, serendipity. Oh, boy. And I said, I bet, I said, I, I bet he felt super guilty. And she says, somehow, I don't think so. Do you? You should. <laughs> and I said, I do feel guilty. Guilty that I've exploited the cheap labor of a great actor who clearly deserves more than $2. <laughs> You're a dick. Oh so that, that is the thing I've done in the past week that I feel most proud of. Because I, as Joanna notes, I am on occasion not a good person. Occasionally. <laughs> Bad person. And so that is my story. You know what you are? Speeches. You're kind of a troll, Dylan. A kind of a troll, but only kind of in a troll. only in meat space, which is the best kind of troll. I'm All a creative right. troll. I don't try to make. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk maybe maybe future episode. Anyway, that is why that is why Peaches was played. Though I do also really like it. It is on my annual playlist, which will be released on my birthday. Hold we'll on, playing a song on a podcast to troll people is not meat space trolling. It is. I'm not. No, I'm not playing that to troll people. I legitimately like that song. Mm -hmm. Right, I'm putting it on the podcast because I legitimately like that song. But you're totally gonna send the podcast to these people, and then they're gonna hear this song. Probably not. No, I mean, I they they're not gonna. I'm gonna be like, ha ha ha! If you just listen to this two hour podcast I recorded, they're not gonna do that. Oh, that, yeah, that's no, how it is. Yeah, okay. I, I would love to trick them in that way, but they would never go for listen it. Listen to two know. hours of one of your podcasts. Yeah, yeah. It turns out that as much as I'm a fantastic human being, not everyone wants to listen to me. And some friend of mine they don't know drone on for two hours. Yeah. I don't understand it, but that's, I mean, that's what they tell me. Well, they don't actually tell me. They won't admit it, but that's what I suss out. Um, okay, so moving on from our break, it's time for Democracy for Realists, which was our uh, book of the month, our media club. Oh, man. We're just getting there now, huh? Okay. Yeah, I know. See, I knew this would. This would... Well, yes. I can't believe I had 50 gigs of crap in my downloads. Folder. Yeah. That's nuts. Um, I, I edited out a long section of the podcast where Joanna ran out of hard drive space and couldn't save this recording. So we're a bit behind schedule here. Yes. Um, yes. Okay. Anyway, so for Democracy Realist, is this a book that is not counting references and things like that? It's about 330 pages. Um, and we just read the first 50. So we're really tip of the iceberg here, mostly the setup. And just before we get there, um, I originally hoped for us to read more of this, but I'm like, oh, if we read 50 pages at a time, it's going to take 
a ton of uh, podcasts. Yeah. So we will read the entire rest of the book over the next two months and return to it uh, during the January episode. But for now, we read the prologue and uh, the first two chapters. Uh, And Joanna, can you... Well, who wants to start? Um, You should start. I'll give a general synopsis and we can go from there. Um, Basically, uh, Democracy uh, for Realists uh, argues that our notion of democracy is is in some ways romantic, not in the love sense, but in the, like, we are so into it that we haven't really looked at it carefully, and that the myths about it have really dominated even the more intellectual spheres. Uh, and it's interesting because, you know, the the project that is democracy relative to civilization, civilization generally is very new. Um, and it is likely that you also... Um, share a conviction that it's not you, Dylan, but you, the listener, share a conviction that democracy is the best form of governance, right? Like that's very, very ingrained, but it is not, there's nothing objectively true about that statement. Um, Like, you know, the way that there's something objectively true about the existence of oxygen or whatever, like there's nothing that guarantees that that's the case. So democracy for realists argues that in fact, um, it is not the case that democracy is uh, successful, and the reason its main its main argument for the reason why that is is that people don't vote based on information. That have that over the course of the many years that Americans have been voting, what the um, what the data shows, the social science and the political science data shows, is that having any particular piece of information is irrelevant. Rather, people vote based on who they perceive the people they identify with as um, the way they're voting. Group identity, basically. Group identity. Um, yeah, I, I want to be careful to avoid words like tribe because colloquially they mean just your group of people. But this book isn't making an argument, isn't necessarily saying, um, oh, you know, people vote based on their race or based on their religion. It's just group identity. So, right. Of which so, those are a part, but not the only parts. Exactly. Um and I actually so. wanted to read just something that's like literally from the first page that I thought was really interesting. And I remember in the first episode I said this book wasn't that academic and you disagreed. I know what you mean in the sense that like it's, it is dense and it like it cites a lot of studies. It's very much like academically sound. But one thing I really like about it is that the authors – a lot of academic writing is really bad writing, like just the sentence to sentence. It's unpleasant to read because the yeah. academy doesn't – they don't give you any points for being a good writer. You know, it doesn't right. matter. Right. So um, it's very dense and sometimes you have to sit there and work things what, out. But, but I was going to say, but this book is not – that's not like that. That While mm-hmm. it is dense, the right. writing is actually good and what it feels like is two experts, two compassionate experts sitting with you and, and walking you through their thought process rather than just like a weird dump of information that you that you don't can't figure out how it's relative to you. And they start with – they said – so they began this work. This book is 18 years in the making. And they said, when we began this work, we thought about democracy in much the same way that most democratic citizens do. The gap we perceived between conventional democratic ideals and the all-too-visible realities was troubling precisely because we took the ideals seriously. Nevertheless, we believed that if the realities failed to match the ideals, we and others seeking to vindicate contemporary democracy still had intellectually powerful backup defenses to bolster our convictions. Chapters 3 through 7 record the depressing failures of all of those defensive positions. At that point, we knew that we had to start over from a completely different foundation, and uh, the later parts of the book are about that. So it really is like, 
I mean, in this saying that again, even as academic intellectuals who study this subject, like they've bought into the folk theory of democracy, which is that, you know, the government represents the will of the people and people, you know, they weigh the positions of politicians and figure out how it feeds into their interests and we all come together collectively and sort of steer the ship of state. You know, using basically trying to make a government that would do the things that we want the government to do. Yeah. Um, which doesn't, I mean, and it sounds, when you say it like that, it doesn't sound like pretty, very radical. Like, obviously people are going to vote in their own self-interest and try to get a government that does the things they want it to do. But it turns out that people don't even do that. And as I said, this is sort of prescient, um, because this book comes out before the election of Trump. And one of the big question in the election of Trump is why do a bunch of poor white people want a person who will remove the social, you know, the elements of government that help the poor and favor elements of government that help the rich, right? It is, act, it is voting against their own self-interest, you know, and, and this book starts to, again, while not dealing with that explicitly, definitely touches on some of that. Uh, and, and one thing I would say this book initially, it made me actually sort of mad because I, it's, a part of me is like, why didn't they tell me this in school, right? That I've been indoctrinated in the myth of democracy that even, you know, my, bo- my father would often tell me in his more cynical sense that, you know, it's a government as good as its people, right? And there's something comforting in a sort of just world fallacy way in believing in democracy, especially when bad things happen. So even if Trump, well, Trump's a bad example because he didn't win the popular vote. But let's imagine a world in which Trump won the popular vote. We could say, well, this is really terrible, but at least most people are getting what they want. But this book undermines even that. You want to go into a little bit more detail on, on how it does so? Um, well, I think that it, I mean, I said this a little earlier, but it really assails this, this, um, notion. If you, if you understand the, maybe back up a little bit, if you understand that the underlying notion of democracy requires, like it absolutely requires to succeed, um, citizens to have access to and make use of information, right? They have to. An informed citizenry is the phrase. Right, an informed citizenry. But when you think about what that is, right, that means being able to look at a piece of information, read it, think about where it's coming from, mm-hmm. w- like why it's being presented to you, how it relates to what's happening, and then on top of that, what you think mm-hmm. about that, right? And, and to weigh it. Because sometimes there'll be a thing where you say, here's a, this politician supports a thing, and you know, and this thing matters. But one of the issues, particularly with like senators mm-hmm. or presidents or federal positions, is that they're in charge of everything, of every policy, of every area, right? And so you have to sort of combine them and say, how much does this matter? Yeah. Uh, and so one thing the book finds, I mean, perhaps not surprisingly, is that things that are really important in the big scheme of things, like the United States foreign policy towards the continent of Asia— is important right that affects a lot of things but nobody votes on that very few voters are aware of any given politicians foreign policy towards anything and they don't particularly care right so there's certain things that even in the idealistic scenario are sort of written out in favor of more hot button issues right exactly so so weighing it but then on top of all of that there's the there's the next question which is okay so now that I fully understand the meaning of this information, right, and it has to do with who's saying it and why it's coming out now and how much it matters and all of this, I then have to decide, 
what I think about it, right? And so at every step of the way, there's a major pitfall um, because we are all coming to this information with different skill levels um, in terms of information literacy and different ways of understanding political relationships um, and, and all inclined to want to share views with people that we feel close to. So the other, so the final thing is that there's an incentive to not do that work, right? Like, because it is work and it's not just work and it's not, and it's attached to things that are often very anxiety inducing or otherwise. So there's an emotional component as well. Um, and so, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly, it is, it is actually quite difficult to be an informed voter. Like that's yeah. just a very hard thing to accomplish. Right. And, and I think that's one thing this book does is it's not like people suck. You know, that's not what it's saying. It's saying exactly. that, that for your normal American who's, you know, medium wage and you have a job that probably works you too many hours and you have children and you have healthcare issues and you have all sorts right. of things. And maybe you want to watch a movie every and once maybe, in a right. while. And, all right. Then carving out a big chunk of time to go and read the news on a daily basis and find out what a political candidate's policy is towards X and what's the best way to uh, administrate health care in the United States and how are we going to deal with global warming. You just don't – you're just not going to do it. And in some ways – and in some ways it's not even rational to do it, to spend right. all this effort to do this thing for your one single vote, which isn't going to win you any points with anybody and you know won't make that much of a difference. Right. It, right. It, the whole thing, it seems uh, a little Herculean. But then on top of that, um, I think um, there's a lot of things you just don't really want to think about, you know, like not just because you don't want to put in the work to think about it because thinking is work, but because the subject itself is upsetting in some way or another. Like if you're voting on, um, you know, a measure on, you know, like granting college education access to whatever population of people, you have to start thinking about all the ways in which various people do or do not have the same opportunities. And there's a level of discomfort that in there, right? Right. Especially if you're not coming at it from a social, a social gratification standpoint, but from a purely like informational one. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, so I think altogether, um, and so then, so then the, the, the sort of next question is, okay, when you have a, a, a public that isn't voting based on information. It's not an informed citizenry, but it's electing people who are supposed to represent them, right? So that maybe those people, that smaller group of people, um, would be the informed citizens, right? And all you really have to do is elect someone who's who you think has the capability to do those so, things. So yeah, so you say, I don't know, but you say you're a good expert. You're a really yeah. smart person who has good ideas, so I'm delegating my responsibility right. to you right right which, which is the idea of like we're not in a direct democracy we don't vote we elect people to vote for us exactly one the problem is and to do that you get back in the same issue of then you have to research the candidate understand their positions of issues you have to be able to make an informed decision about who should represent you and this assumes that you're doing so on a policy-based position when in fact it seems like mostly people will the book gets it's, – it's, we're in chapters past us where it starts getting into like the fine details of exactly how and why people vote in what situations. But a big part of it is – it's almost like do the people who I'm surrounded with – it's almost tautological. 
do the people around me feel good about this person? And of course, there's a big line of like, this book hasn't quite got into this, but I know there's, there's sort of a weird um, negative side of it. It's like, does this person stick it to the people I don't like? You know, that's a big, that was a big motivation for Trump voters. It's not that they thought Trump was super great, but that they really hated the liberals and Trump would stick it to them. You know, and so that's, yeah. it's like a weird ne- negative motivation to vote. God, and it's just, God, it's so depressing. Um, one thing that makes me think about is like, this book is really like, as far as we've gotten in, like it is well sourced. Its arguments are very sound. Like it's a very strong argument. And yet, in terms of the broader discourse, this is incredibly fringe. Like there is no politician of any party who stands up and says democracy is not very good or is broken beyond repair and everything we think about it, right? Even, you know, you think about people like Bernie Sanders who will like go out of their way to be like, I'm a democratic socialist. I'm a democratic socialist, right? That that's, um, someone once once said that um, somewhere in the book that, that uh, democracy is like the civic religion of the United States. And there's a quote from, uh, from one political theorist who says, to reject the democratic creed is to refuse to be an American, right? That this is so core to our identity like you know that it's kind of a truism that to solve a problem you first have to acknowledge that the problem exists and we're not even there with democracy we're not even willing to say like this is severely fucked and so and that's and and to be clear this is um what it's talking about is issues with the very design of democracy it's not the issues with um the administration of democracy like voter suppression and gerrymandering which are very real issues that should be solved. But the book is saying even if we solve those, the system would still be fundamentally broken. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, exactly. I think that the basic issue is that it's fundamentally broken. So the, um, the argument isn't that here are the things we can do to make it better. This is the problem. And most books in this general line of reasoning are that way right um and and my understanding it says i mean at least the prologue tells us that towards the later pages of the book they have a few ideas about you know what we need where we need to go from here but we're not there yet so we don't know what those are yeah but it's not going to have a grand solution right i mean these people who have not independently and brilliantly come up with the best form of government because the thing with is that there's a lot of other forms of government that are not democracies that are also screwed up, you know, dictatorships and oligarchy and whatever. But the difference is that we acknowledge the ways in which those are screwed up and say, oh, yeah, those systems are kind of broken. That's why we don't use them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, this is what I wonder, you know, um, this is, this is, this is a question that comes up for me and it's a really sort of um, pushy question. Yeah. Uh, and that is, you know, there was a time, um, and I'm not saying this is the method we should use at yeah, all. Yeah, no, go for it. It certainly I know isn't. where you're going. But there's a time when we said only landowners could vote. Um, mm-hmm. Or we said a, Land a group of people. Gentry. Yeah, there's a group of people that could vote and there's a group of people that can't. And there's a reason why, right? And, you know, so I, I know some people who would argue that only people with a certain IQ or higher should be able to vote. Right. Um, and I know people who argue that only people who are disempowered who have no who ha- who are less politically privileged should be able to vote. Right. And I know people who think actually I know people who think that only white people should be able to vote. So like I know th- I know the gambit man, but um and what I wonder is uh 
Um, is it possible that we should have a group of people whose job, like whose full-time job it is to vote? To vote, yeah, to, to, to guess, be guess, informed voters. One thing you could do is that you could have those, you could have that essentially be in a, sign, a, a position that was mandated to be demographically representative of the United States. Like so jury wasn't, duty. Right, like jury duty, so it wasn't like white people with a free time or whatever. Yeah. Um, and you could have it have a good salary. I mean, alternatively, another system could be, and, and all, the, all the solutions to this are really extreme because... There's no like small fixes to deal with this. You could have a system where it says you to vote, you have to go through all this sort of critical education and informational stuff and the government will pay your time to do it. So you are allowed to get off work and blah, 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 blah to do this. Um, it's so frustrating though, because like, let's, this may be a terrible idea, but let's say what I just said was a good idea. The chance of that happening in the United States is zero, right? We're, we're not going to, have a massive taxpayer-funded scheme that pays people to not go to work and become informed voters instead. We won't. In the United States, we don't even give people the day off to vote, which goes to show you how much we actually care about democracy, right? Yeah. Like, we're, we're a country that, on one hand, says democracy is great, and on the other hand, tries to make it really hard for people to exercise their democratic rights. That's true. So, and so I, it's, like two, it's like screwed from both ends. One thing I think about a lot, from a purely practical standpoint, is that it's possible that you either don't have anything democratic at all, or you have something like democratic socialism, because it's in those systems where I see them say, okay, every campaign has X amount of funds to use, and that's it. Yeah. You know, provided publicly. It's in those that I see, I see that kind of regulation that wards off the, um, the possibility or the temptation to, to get your votes by simply not allowing the people who would vote differently to vote. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, that's like, I mean, that seems to be a big, I don't know why necessarily, but it seems to me the places that do it better tend to be democratic socialist or have more um, socialized components, at least in their societies. Um, yeah. But, but, but it's also true, like, if we look at like, like often in the United States, at least among, you know, liberals, we think of like the Nordic countries as places that seem to be particularly functional governmentally. But I think one of the uncomfortable truths about the Nordic countries is that they're incredibly homogenous. Yes. And so I think one of the reasons why these function well is that at a certain level, people all view themselves as part of the same community and they view themselves as peers. And so there's even lots have of that. The same, yeah. Right. Even, ha even genuinely have the same inclinations a lot of right, the time. Like, right. Like if literally you, literally if the same genes stick me yeah. in a room with a bunch of Jews, right? right. There's going to be some things that we have in common. It's just right. going to happen that way, right? Right, totally. I think that's true. I also think um, uh, one of the weird things that comes out of this book for me um, is that this is this is a very bizarre take, um, but I was thinking about it because of the JP assignment I gave you about homecoming, mm -hmm. um, and that is that there's a way in which it's not necessarily a bad thing that we think together, right? Or that we share together what we believe in, right? And so it's just bad that we do it on Twitter. <laughs> on Twitter, or maybe it's bad that we do it in a diverse society sometimes, because instead of voting based on a notion of justice, which by definition 
applies equally to everyone, right? Mm-hmm. We based we base it on an ex, a shared experience that's limited to people like us, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that that's not that's maybe not, um, but but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a terrible thing. What am I trying to say? Just because it might spell out the end of democracy, which might seem like the worst thing ever, it's possible that that actually isn't the worst thing ever. It's possible that an informed citizenry that lacked, in which the individuals lacked a shared sense of belonging um, in order to be informed citizenry, would actually be worse. We don't know that, right? Yeah. We and, and certainly in the personal experience, much gratification um, socially arises from a feeling of belonging, right? A feeling of belonging that isn't based on, that isn't evidence-based. Um, so that's, to me, that's just, you know, something that occurs to me. The other thing I want to say is that this relates, when I took a poli-sci class in grad school and this guy named Schiller says this one thing, um, and you'll, you'll know this argument, but I just mentioned him because he's the guy who made it, um, famous. Uh And that argument is that our governance, the design of our governance is to distribute power, um, but it doesn't really distribute power. It just obfuscates it, right? So rather than actually giving the power to the people, it makes it harder to tell how the power is centralized. Um, and that's another challenge. Mm, yeah, and that's, that's another oh challenge. Boy, there's so, so many layers there. I think right. a lot. I think about that a lot in terms of access to um, to the legal system. And that yeah. there's these things that we design on paper, like we say, these are the laws and these are how the laws are administrated. But then we create this entire, we kind of overlay that with capitalism. And then some people can pay for access to that system and some can't. And it's like, the system is not designed with that in mind. I mean, I, cynically, sometimes it is. Some people are like, haha, it won't pass this law and black people won't be able to afford to deal with it. Um, yeah. But in the broader sense, a lot of people like generally don't think of that in terms of lawmaking and law writing. Yeah. God, it's, or, it's it's so, this whole process is so depressing. <laughs> yeah, or even just the plain fact is that there's a person who can um, end the world, right? There's a person with access to the nukes. That is not everybody. That is not equally distributed. One person can end the world. And that, person, <laughs> like, is, and that person is Donald Trump. Let's not think about that. So um, <laughs> all I'm saying is that, like, uh, yeah, all I'm saying is that, is that, in fact, in many ways, um, our notions of how power should be assigned, right, might have been decentralized, but the fact of it, the fact of the power has not been at all. And so um, then again, to go back to this idea that maybe we should have a group that votes, right, that isn't everybody, maybe that's not a change so much as a reveal, right? Maybe it, maybe we what we need to do is reveal that We've never had a democracy, right? We've never had distributed power. Uh-huh. And look at what that means. Um, and that, it's so funny because um, you mentioned, you know, how terrible Twitter is. But if there's one thing that I've learned um, on shitposter Twitter, it's the distinction between what I thought was definitely true and what turns out to be just like an extremely deeply held conviction, right? And it doesn't mean that my conviction has necessarily changed, but I've had to recognize that it's not necessarily based on anything factual. Um, and so I have a cousin who's like, uh, who, who, who says to me, well, you know, Joanna, I just never want, I just never want this kind of information to even be thought about or studied. Like, it's just all it's going to do is 
cause people to hate each other. And but now that I know that it's possible to study it, I kind of want to. You know, wait, I just wait, this know. isn't the cousin. So, I think it is. Is it? It's Max. Not okay, Moshe. no, okay, okay. Thank you're you. thinking of you're thinking of Moshe. It's Max. Okay, um, I'm trying not to name people on the podcast, but you do you. Well, you just said, "Is it the cousin I'm thinking of?" And you could have said yes you. or no. Well, how was I supposed to know which one you were thinking of? You knew which one I was one thinking of. of. Okay. No, I didn't. Which one were you thinking of? I still don't know. Um, obviously, Moshe. Okay. Yeah. Obviously. Obviously. Um, no. Yeah. Uh, man, now I want to talk about that, but I can't. Okay. No. So, no, no, that would be bad. So, uh, yeah. So, anyways, I, th- I think about it. I think about that somewhat, right? But, um. The last thing that I think about, you know, when I'm like, all right, so maybe we should topple the government and try a new kind of government is that like, realistically speaking, the transition would be so god awful that, you know, I'm pretty sure that in the short term, in the long term, it might be better for everyone. We don't know. But in the short term, it would be thoroughly awful for everybody, like everybody. And that's just, you know, it's like, even if it's the better thing to do, it's really hard to imagine signing up for that experience. So that's sort of where I'm at. Yeah, I was just gonna say this conversation reminds me of why I keep you around. Ah, I appreciate yay. your ability to just like come up with so much stuff. This book, to me, I find the book like this like deeply rewarding, but at the same time sort of paralyzing. And you, you, you have all these ideas of like we could do this and we could do this. It's inspiring. You're a good thinker sometimes. <gasps> wow, that was an exciting moment in my life. Now it's over. Okay. Um. So, so yeah, in January, I mean, we could talk about this for a long time, but for the sake of podcast running time, let's, let's cap it there. We will talk about the rest of the book in January. You're welcome to read along. It is Democracy for Realists by Christopher Aachen and Larry Bartels. Yep. Let's put our heads together to start a new country up. Fathers, fathers, father tried to erase the parts you didn't like. Let's try to fill it in. Bank the quarry, river swim. We need skin that you and me. We need skin that river red. This is where we walk. This is where we Take a picture here, take a souvenir, this land is the land of ours, this river Anyway, it's now time for the joke of the month, which is right. a alternating feature, right? You're going to do jokes next time, right, Joanna? Uh, I'm doing the joke next time. Yeah. Oh, God. But this time, we okay. are doing jokes from a book that I picked up in Port Townsend, Washington. And I just, you know, sometimes you find a little thing in a little store that you're like, I have to have this. So this and was. Rather than putting it on hold at the library like I do, you just buy it. Uh, I can promise you that this is not available in probably any library in the United States. Oh, my gosh. This was... That means you have to go put it into circulation. I know. You are this... no longer allowed to own that book, Dylan. This was. Uh, I think these guys, you basically, you know when you walk into a small store in Port Townsend, and the book was published in Port Townsend, and it's an imprint of the place that you bought the book. <laughs> it's, basically, it's basically like, it's, it's the next step to being self-published. 
and I just want to read you. This book is called 99 Ant Jokes by Toby and Rafe Menon. Menon, I don't know. And they say, Introduction. Three years ago, our grandpa, Kurt, started telling us jokes he called ant jokes. These were jokes in which the punchline contained the word ant, such as, what do you call an ant that likes rolling places? A tyrant. 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 In this case, oh, they explain it. In this case, tyrant would be tire ant to describe the rolling. We found these jokes exceptionally funny and began coming up with our own. This book is a collection of the funniest, craziest, and most outrageous ant jokes that we, along with our grandpa Kurt and grandma Sheila, have come up with. Uh, at the time of this writing, the authors were—I don't know if they say—but if you look at the picture, they look like they're like old like, and wrinkly. No, like sixteen and twelve or something. Oh, so this, young. Yeah, this is a book by kids. So, um, so I have had a tradition at work where I read—I was for a while I was reading one of these jokes every day to my deskmate. We're actually almost done with it, but boy, it's like a whole. I just love that someone like made ninety nine of these jokes. These fantastic. two brothers, fantastic! It's fantastic. Is that what you said? Yeah. Um, let me see if I can find a, a good one. Like here's a straightforward one. What do you call an ant that's uncooperative? I don't know what. No, you have to actually come up with it. Oh, you have to try. um, hold on, hold on, hold on. An antagonist. No, that's not right. That's good. It's, it's un- so. So wait, no, if- it's non cooperative uncooperative right so you like tell the ant you do this thing and they're like no that ant would be oh oh no i know this hold on i don't i okay what is it tell me defiant 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 yeah. yep um the other day i was trying to remember um the the word catalyst and it took me like all afternoon and i like messaged several people and i'm like it starts with a c and it connects one thing to another but it's not connect and it changes it a little bit it's a what's it called <laughs> that's the end of my story oh oh dude that was gross <laughs> what do you call an ant that defies gravity Back. um this one's a little harder but it's still a good one. Oh. Wait, let's go back to the last one. Non-compliant. Very good. That could have that would have worked. Yes. What okay. do you call an ant that defies gravity? Uh, a falling ant. <laughs> a no, no, ant. no. You wouldn't be falling if you defied gravity, you moron. A flying, a flying <laughs> ant. An ant, a queen ant. A, um, you want It's ascendant. No. Ascend ant. I would have gotten there. I no, you would there. not have. Filthy liar. Here's the, and sometimes they go, they're a little bit less obvious, but still great. Like, what do you call an ant with ESP? Uh, I don't know what. An expectorant. Nice. <laughs> what do you call an ant that swims in schools? That swims in schools? Yes. Like, I have no idea. What sort of creature swims in schools? A fish. So what's a fish that might fit this book? I don't know. What fish ends in ant? An anchovy. Oh, my lord. <laughs> and my personal favorite. I don't want to say that. There's a lot of these. What do you call 200 ants trying to move a boulder? I don't know what. Insufficient. Oh! <laughs> those four ants! 
insufficient. Oh no. Oh no. And oh, no. finally, why two hundred? Why not just three already? Why did one hundred ninety-seven have no, to be used? I in don't that know. Joke? What do you what do you call an ant that lives at college? I think you can get uh, this. a student. But what do you call the things that that they live in? At dormant. College? Dormant. A dormant. Yes, he's dormant. All right. Got and, it. And and finally, okay, this final one. What do you call a group of ants that brews potions? I have no idea. So who brews potions, Joanna? Witches. And what do you call a group of witches? Covenant. It's a covenant. covenant. It's a covenant. I was like, what's a group of witches? I don't know. Oh, yes, I do. Okay. All so, right. There you go. Moving those are on. Those are ant jokes. There are about... 89 more from the ones I read. Uh, you, I, Hell knows. I think you can get those on Amazon. In fact, I know you can get it on Amazon because I've written the only good review of this book on Amazon. In fact, the only review of this book on Amazon, which I hoped warmed the cockles of the author's hearts. And moving on, it's time for Dylan's Game Corner. Woo! Woohoo! Woohoo! Uh, this this uh, week... We're talking about Magic the Gathering. So, geez, if I was a smart person, I would have had a f some exact dates because I care about those things, even if the audience doesn't. Um, so, totally off the top of my head and not reading from Wikipedia, Magic the Gathering is a card game that was released in 1993. And this is going to be a little weird, I realize, because Magic is one of those things like, you've played Magic or you don't, or you haven't. And if you've played Magic... You know magic, and this is gonna be redundant. And if you haven't played magic, you're gonna be like, "What the? Like, why do I give a shit?" Um, there's an there's there's a, I think a strong argument that Dungeons and Dragons is the most influential cultural work of the 20th century, which I agree with. So not magic, but magic is outside of D and D, maybe the most influential game design of the 20th century. Magic touches everything. Magic is just an idea of a guy named Richard Carfield who had this idea that what if you had a card game and instead of being sold in a set of cards, it was sold in different randomized packs which each had different cards, which each did different things and had different art and whatever. Um, and then you build decks of them and they'd fight each other. The basic idea of Magic is that you, the player, are a planeswalker who's a special type of person who can summon creatures and cast spells. And they fight each other until one of the other wizards you're fighting is dead. But that's really just sort of a, a loose frame story to have like every type of creature and every type of art from every type of fantasy there is. And he had this idea that like some cards would be rares and then, you know, that would be like your one rare card and it'd be really special to you. Neither he nor the company that produced it, Wizards of the Coast, anticipated selling anything like it did. The first print run sold out instantly. The second print run sold out instantly. They did a third print run that also sold out. And so you ended up with this entire beast of a, of a thing, which 25 years later is not only going strong, but is probably the most popular it has ever been. The reason I'm talking about Magic this week is that I've been playing Magic the Gathering Arena, which is an open beta version of, of it as a digital card game. It's basically Magic free-to-play online, but an important note is that the rules are the exact same as, as what's called paper magic, normal physical magic. So it's basically the same game, and it's made me think a little bit about it and its culture. So Magic is an interesting game because it's the game that introduced the idea of a 
game basically being two parts. The first part is deck building, where you have a deck that has to contain at least 60 cards. It can contain more, but you almost never want it to, because the more cards you put in there, the more you dilute the cards that you have. So in terms of like knowing what you're getting, you generally want to stick around 60. Yeah. And you have a combination of lands and spells. Uh, every spell requires a certain amount of mana to cast it. So it'll be like this spell requires two mana of any color and two green mana. And then you'll have lands, which are like a forest, and a forest generates green mana. Yeah. On your turn, you can play one land in any number of spells that you have the mana to play. So it's a game that you sort of ramp up. You start the turn, you play one mana. You may have a one mana card, you may not, but you play, sorry, play one land. And over time, you get more and more land, and you kind of start with like little creatures, and eventually you have big creatures, right? And there's all sorts of deck types. I mean, this is 25 years of design. It is now probably the most expensive game that is made in terms of actual design because it the thing's basically a license to print money. Um, they have an enormous R&D division, not to mention a bunch of well-paid freelance artists and whatnot. Because this is a game where you sell it in packs. It costs, I don't know, $3, maybe $4 now. Um, and they have a few cards, and they have commons and uncommons and rares. And very quickly, you get all the co- commons you need, and maybe even most of the uncommons, but the rares, you only get one a pack. So, t- you know, you can. it's all about what other people are playing, right? So if you're playing with your friends at the kitchen table out of a few boosters, you're all roughly evenly matched. But rare cards tend to be better than common cards. And so if you're playing competitively and you're trying to trace those rares and then later introduce mythic rares, which are even more rare, you're dropping a thousand bucks a year on Magic. So on one hand, Magic is a really brilliant game that has is both relatively easy to learn but has enormous depth and has maybe a few baked in flaws involving like the land system and in a few sure, but every game has a couple right every game has a couple but the difference is that there are games arguably like if you were playing this say i want to play the collectible card game in 2018 magic is maybe not what i would recommend because everyone else is built on what magic built but what's important to know is that magic is a game that most things that invent the wheel are not very good right like the first wheel that was ever invented was probably a really shitty wheel magic's an actual good game that was invented holds down in some ways it's a great game and even and it's been refined in various ways over time of course but ultimately the core rules are the same they were when it was first placed in 1993 it's a it's a work of genius also not one that people should play competitively because the nature of the economy is that it's an enormously expensive hobby that it's hard to justify relative to other things you could be doing with your time but because it's a physical card game the cards you buy do have resale value and so it's not all lost money. And so magic is a weird thing in that it's both a game and an economy. There's the game you play with the cards and there's the economy yeah. of the cards. And when the game designers are making game design decisions about what the meta is, and the meta is short for the meta game, which is basically of the cards that are out and are legal, because one thing they start doing when the card pool gets too big is they have set retirement. So you can only play cards in normal tournaments from the last two years or so. Um Different strategies are better or weaker depending on, you know, what is there to exist and counter it and whatever, which then changes the value of the cards. Um, years ago, Wizards reprinted some cards. Like in the late 90s, they reprinted some cards. And that caused the value of cards to go down, right? Because there were now more copies of these rare cards. And people rebelled because their investment in these cards had been tanked. And so Wizard made a promise that they would never again reprint the exact same cards from these years a promise that they have since come to deeply regret 
because it really hamstrings them in terms of what they can do with the design for which they hold to this day. So it's a really weird desire to manage both a game and an economy. Um, Magic as a free-to-play game is even weirder because as a free-to-play game, you can actually get cards and decks decently fast without spending a cent. So you can do it, and it's okay as a free-to-play player. If you are spending money to get packs, it's a terrible value because they can't make it substantially cheaper than real Magic. Yeah. Or everyone would just play this, but real Magic is a terrible value. So it's a really weird case of a game where obviously the point is for you to play the money, but you really shouldn't. Um, anyway, it's interesting. It's Magic is like a piece of history that is still existing today. It often has beautiful card art. There's a certain amount of self-expression through the decks. There's a whole community around it, a whole verbiage. Um, yep. And yeah, and so I and it's I, I've been playing it in my evenings. You know, a game here, a game there. Yeah. So for me, it's a it's a good game that to kind of. I don't know. Absolutely. There's not a point to this, but this is just like my thoughts on Games Corner. And then I guess the other thing is to say that Magic beget Hearthstone, which is now one of those popular video games in the world. It's beget a million digital CCGs. It is actually really weird that we we live in a world in which some of the most popular video games and one of the most fastest, certainly the fastest growing sector of video games in terms of money are games that are just online versions of playing with cards, right? Like, of all the things you could do with video games, you simulate playing a card game. That makes sense to me because I hate shuffling. I know. Right. And for a lot of people, there's a lot of convenience to it. But it's sort of weird, this way in which the analog the analog, is the basis also, for the digital. Also, I wonder if it has to do with the fact that there are games that we have a lot of nostalgic connection to playing, but we don't necessarily have people in person to play with that was that's that's also a part of it though i will say one of the good things about magic relative to so like there's so many brilliant sort of collectible or like build a deck games that i don't play because i don't have anyone to play them with magic is one of the few games it's so big no you can live in bumfuck idaho and there is a game store there's someone to play magic with yeah, that's true. And it's also a very wide population. So it's gamers, but it's also frat boys. Like, yeah. it's everybody. Yeah, it's everybody. And in fact, there's things like, there's a, something called the Lady Planeswalker Society, which exists exclusively to get, you know, magic, like so much of gaming is male-dominated. So it exists exclusively to create a welcoming place for, for, um, women, to for women to play magic. games. And in fact, because of that, if you're a woman who wants to play magic, you can get a lot of cards for free from the Lady Planeswalker Society. So it's like actually pretty cool. Um sure but magic it, it definitely is like the company like will hand out like free starter packs and everything because it's like the first hit is free you know? i remember there was this guy getting dragged really hard by gawker back when gawker was still a thing because he's really rich but he's really rich because he was a competitive he was a good competitive magic player and so somebody from gawker remember this the author I don't went know on a this. date with him and then oh yes i did write... remember this oh yeah and remember it was how like... terrible that was yeah gawker so i mean gawker was the fucking worst we don't really need it to was. go into this i yeah. guess it's one we're in kind of in a weird place where like saying gawker was the worst is actually not very controversial so everyone's like yep i'm of the opinion that basically all of the gawker family was more or less as bad as gawker and that includes isn't, isn't gothamist no, no Gothamist, like Gothamist is different. Different company, different things. Oh, okay. Not that bad. I but like, they were for some but Gawker was like, um, Kotaku was part of the Gawker family. They weren't as bad as Gawker, but they had their issues. But like Jezebel, for instance, which, you know, the oh, left lot was super Jezebel's great. Jezebel's the worst. Um, Jeze- Absolutely And the worst. Jezebel is awful. 
Um, Awful. And, you know, you can fight me, internet, but please understand. Oh, no, wait, wait, I got a better one. Everyday Feminism put out an ad on my Facebook oh, feed about, about a training, there, a three-day training they're doing on curing your internalized whiteness. Your internalized whiteness. Your well, in, the inside I mean, you, you can't, whiteness. You can't cure the externalized whiteness, right? So it makes sense that it will be the internalized. I just terrible. I guess. That's what I'm saying. I feel it's like, I, I feel just, just to hoard off the the troll ward off. hoard off whatever ward off whatever it's probably worth knowing to Jack say that off. i mean well i don't speak for you joanna i actually do consider Chill myself shut stop it i actually do <laughs> consider myself a feminist so i think it's always worth saying that when we that when i say jezebel is awful i don't mean jezebel is awful because it's a feminist website and i'm anti-feminism i mean jezebel is awful because it's terrible at feminism and yes, critical thinking and all sorts of other things feminism deserves better is bullshit then jezebel yeah um uh but yes but later gawker went under and they all got bought by univision so now we hate univision instead gotcha um boo univision boo univision so should we move on yeah, we should definitely move on we should actually hit pause in our recording so i can save this and also I need to go to the bathroom okay haha i figured it out oh my god i'm so dumb I'm just gonna. The great thing about it is no, I know, but it, it's not that dumb, but it's pretty dumb. So I'm really you, glad. You know this how happened. when you you know how when you're watching a YouTube video, you press pause and then you press play, mm-hmm. but it's the same button most of the time because it goes back and forth between pause and play, right? Uh huh. Um. So when you want to unpause on Audacity, you have to press the pause button a second time. Uh huh instead of the record button okay that's all okay i mean i don't really all i care about is the fact that i now have you on recording saying oh my god i'm so dumb oh my god you are a troll listen to you troll me (laughs) and this is not in meat space and this is not in meat space because you are in sacramento california you are a troll that is all there is to it i can now put this as like my text message sound so if i ever get a text from you it'll just be like oh my god i'm so dumb <laughs> I'm oh, sorry. I'm not the God. one who did, recorded a video of me. Of, I recorded a video of my sister and tormented her, and then like, oh my God, that was times. amazing. That rediscovering that video made my whole night. I laughed for like five minutes still, and you have and, no and idea. And was Neil like, "What the fuck is wrong with you?" <laughs> no, but Walter, Walter was. Wait, you were at work. <laughs> No, but then I showed it to him today, um, and he was like, that's not funny, and it shouldn't be your favorite video. And I'm like, Walter, fine. So, uh, Joanna's Book Club, Joanna's Book Something, right? No, We're on book books nook. now? Book Nook, Joanna's right, Book I, Nook. I, I oh, God. Joanna's Book Nook. I have maybe had a little bit too much beer. Okay. Joanna's Book Wait, Nook. I'm no, sorry. actually. Have you drunk more than one beer? No, I've drunk 99.9% of a Bronx Brewery Boom Boom IPA. Which and is what ABV? Oh, it's 8.1%. That's respectable. It's an 8.1% ABV beer. Yeah. Only okay, a little so. bit lightweight. No, I'm pretty lightweight. Um, no, the... I'm just kidding. Joanna's actually really heavy. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> 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 You're such an asshole. Okay. Joanna's, Joanna's book nook. Joanna's Nook of Books. Actually, I really want to tell you about this book. I've been waiting to tell you about it. It's called Soul Friends by Stephen Cole. And it's 
This book is very interesting because it is not the sort of book I would ever recommend normally on account of it being technically a self-help book, complete with like end of chapter exercises and everything. Like it is very right. much and, a- and you would never read something like that because it's essentially a perfect person. You don't need any help. No, because I suspect the genre of being garbage. But um, the the this book, what appealed to me about it was two things. One is that it is written in a memoiric format. So a lot of self-help books have an anecdote like, Casey wasn't happy because of this. And Ron did this, right? And it's like, oh, my God, stop talking. But this uh, <laughs> this this book is... Just it's just this author talking about his life, right? So it's a memoir about that um, in that sense. And then in addition to it, the author himself he's trained in Western psych, he reads Eastern thought, but he's also he's also uh, just a general intellectual, right? So he and I, there's something that we have in common, a similar interest that I pick up on immediately, and I'm interested in reading what he has to say because he is interesting to me. What's so funny? Why are you laughing? Oh, you at me? know, he's just a general intellectual, which is something that he and I have in common. So it's- that's funny. This is the second time someone this week has been like, "You're a giant snob for preferring the company of people who are intellectual." But fuck that. Uh, no, it I, is- I, I also prefer that. I was you trying to figure out how to make this an insult, but no, actually, yes, you are an intellectual, and I prefer your company. Thank you. Shut it up. Um, no, but I, somebody was like. Oh, somebody on Facebook was like, sapiosexuals are ableist and classist. And I was like, Wait, get, yeah, I was like, get fucked. We are going to have this argument. I'm not even sapiosexual. But if I was, it wouldn't make me classist or sexist. And so. Right. That person or ableist sensitive or racist. Yeah, right. Um, their argument, their argument was that, you know, in order to be sapiosexual, it was about literally how much you know like knowing a lot and some people don't have access to uh, this that and the other and you know some people are also like I just, why, developmentally why even... incapable and so it's able to and i'm like and i'm like listen we're talking about personal preference here i'm not talking about people's rights i'm talking about who is in my bedroom get the fuck off my front lawn anyways that is the wait i'm sorry there. your bedroom's in your front on your front lawn Yes, it is now, in this analogy. Um, but anyways, this book, which is called Soul Friends by Stephen Cole, is really excellent for the following reasons. Seriously, you should read it, because the topic of the book is, um, what is real, deep human connection? How does it work? How do you develop it in your life, right? Like, uh, and stop making that face. That is not necessary. You can't see his face, listener, but believe me, it was not necessary. Um... What was I going to say? So, so he starts, and he does it chronologically, and this is a way in which it's very self-help bookishly, because it's just chronologic, right? So it starts <laughs> when you're a baby, and it goes through adulthood. <laughs> and there's this caveat, right, that these are, there's sort of idealized stages, kinds of connections, they're split into categories, um, and they're, you know, that if you don't necessarily achieve a certain goal or get to a certain point at one point in your life, you can do it. There are opportunities along the way, theoretically, to do it at a later point. So even though it's laid out chronologically, it's not it's not tied to that chronology. And um, it explores how we form relationships um, that, uh, and they're not um, all necessarily romantic uh or 
uh, and they're not all necessarily familial, familial. It's just about how you get past that feeling of disconnect um, and, and make connections that are real um, and valuable. It also doesn't necessarily mean um, relationships that are forever, right? Like it can be relationships that have come and gone. Um, and so it starts out the very beginning of the book, the author asks you to make a list of people who meant a lot to you um, or mean a lot to you in your life. And as you go through the book, you look at, you try to figure out why, what kinds of connections according to Western and Eastern thought and how they relate developmentally to who you are. And one of the premises of the book that I specifically dig is that it suggests that we are all co-created, right? That in fact, this, in fact, that who we are is created as together. Um, so nobody is anybody all by him or herself. And so therefore, these connections matter not just for social reasons, the typical social reasons you think, which is who doesn't want to have people they feel connected to, but also because they literally help structure who you are. Uh, so, um, and it's worth noting that the author himself at the end of the book um, is, uh, has decided to make a home with a very good friend of his who he's not romantically involved with. And they specifically talk about creating a place that is, um, that is, you know, open and welcoming for the group of friends that they've created. They like the idea of having people come in and out all the time. They have a very intentional lifestyle together, but it is not your stereotypical one. And he, um, yeah, he's just... Uh, it's whatever. And it's hard to explain specifically because it's hard to describe it's why not this, why this book, because it's not generic, but also why this book is substantially different from your average self-help book. Um, but, but suffice it to say, it really is, you know, it's not the most eloquent book I've ever read. It's not like a literary masterpiece, you know, but it is. It is full of heart and it is very insightful and it and its sources are reliable and it's very good about citing them and I just like it. So you should read it. It's called Soul Friends by Stephen Cole. It's obviously nonfiction. And when you say you, obviously you mean the audience, but do you also think I should read it? Yeah, I think you should read it. I also really think my sister should read it. I personally Aww. think my it would be like my sister's new Bible after she reads it. Aww. That so she has good. to read it. So Irene, if you're listening to this, read the fucking book. Okay. And then your sister can come and be my platonic housemate. Oh boy. Yes, this, sure. And you guys can have a happily ever after together in Sacramento, California. Right. Okay. Well, that was Joanna's book nook. I look forward to reading that. Um, so yeah, we will post the links to uh, the next JPs and all the relevant links in the description. So listen to that. Otherwise, um, we will have an episode out in probably early December. Probably, yes. Uh, yeah, cool. Okay, and remember, any feedback or ideas, email a possibility of opinions at gmail.com. Sounds good. Okay. Send us an email. All yep. right. Bye. Bye. Oh my God, I'm so dumb. Oh my God, I'm so dumb. Oh my God, I'm so dumb. <laughs>